Hello out there to whoever's listening. Uh, this is Pastor Tim Dooner of Valley Forge Presbyterian Church, and I welcome you to this fifth sermon from our Fall and Winter 2019 series on Christian and Congregational Vitality. Uh, this sermon is entitled, Marks of Vitality, Spirit-Inspired Worship. I invite you now to enjoy and become centered by a time of quiet and stillness as we prepare to think about this together. What I share for your consideration and imagination in this episode is in response to a portion of the letter to the Hebrews, and this text is from the 12th chapter of that letter. You have not come to something that can be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that not another word be spoken to them. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us give thanks, by which we offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We are grateful for how God uses the scripture to shape, inspire, and to call us. So this is a series uh, of reflections originally um, shared in our worship gatherings on what it looks like for us to have, as individuals or together as a community of faith, Christian or congregational vitality. Just as beating hearts and expanding lungs are signs that a body has vitality, it has that which it needs for life to continue. We're considering seven signs of vital congregations, vital Christianity. So far in this series, we've considered lifelong discipleship orientation, authentic evangelism, outward focus, and empowered ministry by all people. And in this episode, we consider spirit-inspired worship. In Jesus' time, the religious worship of the people revolved around the temple sacrificial system. Most male children got a few years uh, of instruction in the scriptures. Some of those got a few more years. And a select few who were going to go on to be the rabbis who would teach the next generation got the most instruction in the scriptures until they knew it all. Some people, in the midst of their daily or weekly routines, went to the synagogues to hear what the rabbis had to say, but most didn't. It was not a religious requirement, and they often had more pressing matters to attend to, like crops and flocks. They were required to keep the Sabbath, but that was about rest and, and not ritual. It was not uh, a weekly worship gathering as we might understand our Sundays now. It was, it, it was an observance that they had um, on their own, not, not, a, not a corporate worship gathering. There were some required 
feasts and pilgrimages uh, annually, and in the midst of the religious year, there were required sacrifices that had to be made at the temple. Throughout the year, the Pharisees made sure that everyone knew what the rules were and what sacrifices had to be made at the temple in exchange for breaking those rules. And so worship really had nothing to do with daily living in relationship with God. To most, worship was occasional sacrificial offerings mediated by priests. And although God was the recipient of the sacrifice, although God was the object of worship, God was not the inspiration to worship. The inspiration to worship was a set of laws and a calendar. God demanded worship, but did not inspire it, so they understood. And that is because it was assumed that God wasn't there in the midst of everyone's daily living. It was assumed that God was in the heavens somewhere else and would come down only in the Holy of Holies within the temple in the presence of a select few priests. The Israelites had their stories of theophanies, God appearing to some of their ancestors, like when God spoke with Abraham, or appeared to Moses in the burning bush on the top of the mountain, or appeared to the Israelites in the pillar clouds as they were led through the Red Sea as part of their exodus from Egypt. But the people of Jesus' time didn't really expect theophanies. They didn't expect to encounter God in the midst of life. So God wasn't a part of their daily lives. The religious rules were, but God wasn't. What God didn't want them to do was always a daily motivation through the law. But what God did want them to do was not a daily motivation. They didn't expect to have an actual relationship with God. And in fact, they assumed that if they saw God, they would die. But Jesus had a different understanding of worship. When he encountered the Samaritan woman at the well, she sensed this authority that he had, and, and she asked him to settle an ages-old dispute between the Jews and the Samaritans about which peoples were worshiping in the right way. That is the way that their ancient Israelite ancestors did before the Babylonian exile. Samaritan religion understood that Mount Gerizim was the holy place to be, not Jerusalem, not the temple, and that this mountain is where they ought to pilgrimage to worship God by hearing the priests read from the Torah. She said to Jesus, Our Samaritan ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is the temple in Jerusalem. And in response, Jesus said to her, Believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The hour is coming and is already here when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This was Jesus talking about worship. What is the right way to worship, she asked. Maybe we ask a similar question. Who actually has the right location? Who actually has the right combination of scripture readings or prayers or offerings or sacrifices? Was it the Samaritans at Gerizim with their liturgy from Deuteronomy? Was it the Jews at the temple in Jerusalem with their sacrifices mediated by priests? Was it the Orthodox Christians with their iconography and incense? 
Is it Catholic Christians with Latin liturgies and seven priest-mediated sacraments? Was it the Calvinist Christians of the early Reformation with their austere attitudes, empty sanctuaries, and sermons that lasted hours? Is it us, in our space, at the time that we set for our gathering, with the hymns that we sing out of our hymnal and the confessions that we make out of our confessional, is it our order of worship? Are we the ones who are worshiping in the right way? The hour is coming, and it's already here, when true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. It's not about the laws, not about the building, not about the music, it's not about the human leader. God is not confined by laws, locations, buildings, music, or leaders. God is spirit, said Jesus. And in the Greek language, the word pneuma meant both spirit and air. God is air. God is everywhere. The Samaritan woman's question about worship was about location. It was about where we worship. Where do we encounter God? Where can God inspire, guide, and call us to act? Where do we practice our religion? Jesus' response is amazing. We worship in the pneuma, the spirit, the air, everywhere. In the letter of the Hebrews, we hear the same conviction. You have not come to one location in which God is confined or to which your practice of religion ought to be limited. You have not come to something that can be touched, a blazing fire, a temple pillar of cloud. Your faith does not bring you into some limited, conditional, or disconnected, distanced experience of God. You've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, both images of this place of direct connection and communion with God. There's no separation between us and God. God is not confined to the building where we gather as a congregation and then left here when we leave. God does not withdraw God's presence from us ever. God is spirit. God is everywhere. We live our lives on the mount and in the city of God's presence. So therefore, says this letter, in this unshakable kingdom, let us give thanks by which we offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Acceptable worship. Vital worship is birthed out of a gratitude to God, giving thanks. Vital worship is dripping with a sense of reverence and awe before God. Vital worship is spirit-centric. Vital worship is not about self-gratification or about our preferences being met. Vital worship is not about being entertained or comforted or pleased. Vital worship is not about ritual divorce from meaning or ritual that's habitual but not transformative. Vital worship is an opening to God and reverence and awe, one that challenges, teaches, discomforts, transforms, and sends us out different. What we do together when we gather in our sanctuary on Sunday mornings is not the fullness of what it means to worship God. What we do in that space and time is practice, worship exercise, so that what we practice when we're together becomes a part of our daily natural rhythms of worship. We practice pausing the speed of life and calling ourselves to intentionally worship God. We practice confessing the ways we've allowed our own desires or fears to drive our lives instead of God's will in and through us. We practice being people of peace unto all around us. We practice opening our minds and hearts to those around us and to God's desires for them in prayer. 
And we practice being sent out to participate in God's good work by the words and actions of our daily lives. And then we're sent into those daily lives to worship in spirit and truth 24-7, to participate in the unshakable kingdom, to live with a constant heart of thanksgiving, reverence, and awe, to every day pause, confess, reorient, pray, open to God and neighbor, and live as instigators of peace. As Paul wrote to the Romans, to present our bodies, wherever they may be found each and every day, as living sacrifices offered freely in love for God's sake, is our act of spiritual worship. If our gatherings for public worship incarnate our gratitude to God, our reverence of God, our all before God, and if they prepare and inspire and equip us to live lives of worship by uh, offering our lives for the sake of others with that same gratitude and reverence of all and all, then our worship is vital. So God, may God grant us the courage and conviction to move beyond an understanding of worship that is connected to self-gratification, personal preferences, comfort, entertainment, habit, and to gather weekly with hearts of thanksgiving, with the expectation of being in God's presence together with reverence, awe, and an openness to being changed by it, and with the expectation of being sent out to worship in spirit all throughout our lives, for our sake, for the sake of our neighbors, and for the sake of the kingdom. Amen. God bless your prayers and your reflections.